join, join with me if you know this prayer. So, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Listen, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength, and your neighbor as yourself. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So, two things. One, um, and somebody mentioned this and I thought about it. It's so true. Um, like I, on the Shema, that prayer when it says listen, um, the actually translation, listen is a bad word because listening, people confuse listening and um, hearing because like um, a husband can listen to his wife and never hear anything she says. <laughs> so I was just pointing at him. Um, but like, actually, the word Shema doesn't really mean like with your ears. It means to pay attention. Um, I don't think a lot of people pay attention. Um, so just FYI. And then secondly, this morning on the news, somebody was carrying a, a sign that says, um, God loves life. And this interviewer goes up and says, well, do you believe God loves life? And they said, yeah. And then why in the Noah story did he destroy all life? Um, and, like, I wish I could have been there. And I know because we ran out of time, I didn't cover the Noah story. But the point of the Norris, Noah story really is not, and this will be a repeated theme, God didn't destroy life. God just let man sin. This sounds kind of strange. But man's sins, our sins, and this is a biblical concept, affect each other. That our sins, like I may sin, but it affects you. Our sins even affect creation itself. And so really, it's not what God, God did not destroy people. God just allowed the destruction to happen. Um, that man's sin, in, in the Hebrew will be against creation, came flooding back on him. He created chaos, so chaos came back. Um, so, Ah, technically that's not true. God didn't destroy. So I missed that, but we're going to start this week off. Our, today's class is on Abraham, but to understand the story of Abraham, we have to start with uh, the story of Babel. Hopefully you guys know, I'm not going to review the whole story, but it says that humanity spoke in one tongue. Now, the story is more than just explaining why there's different languages in a way, and this sounds kind of strange, the story of Babel is this backwards blessing upon humanity. Um, uh, so at one time, human beings actually did speak one language, right? Pretty obvious. In fact, um, anthropologists guess that it actually would have sounded a lot more like clicking, um, which I know sounds kind of strange. I don't, they did this primitive society study, and that's what they think. But speaking in tongues, um, what it means when that happens in the Bible, speaking in tongues means speaking different languages. The word for tongue and language is the same word. And the point being is that the one tongue that God wants us to learn how to speak is the language of love. And so you get this story of humanity saying, come, let us build this great tower, this great city. Um, and they go on the plain of Shinar, which is actually Babylon, 
And the odd part is that's a really great place for humanity to settle. It has everything we need. And when it says tower, it's actually a ziggurat. If you remember your seventh grade archaeology, um, um, a ziggurat is kind of this sacred mountain. And so they'd build this sacred mountain with stairs up the middle. So when um, that Jacob has this dream of this stairway, or Jacob's ladder, it's not a ladder, it's not a stairway, it's a ziggurat. It's a whole, it is a stairway. But do you guys remember what a ziggurat is? Well, then Google it. Um, <laughs> it it's kind of like a big pyramid with stairs up the middle, um, kind of like the Mayans, but it's what Babylon would have looked like. Um, and Shinar would have been the perfect place for humanity. For humanity to thrive, it had water, it had great soil for agriculture, it had salt. Um, human compounds were always near salt compounds. So it's this ideal place for humanity. With um, We should be able to thrive there. Um, it has running water, everything. And the odd part is, we ruined it by this false sense of unity. And so the story says that we settle in the perfect spot, we have everything we need, and then it says, let us make bricks. Well, bricks, just FYI, that's a foreign way of building for Jews, but the point being is that bricks were the new technology. So this is a Neolithic story. Bricks would have been the new uh, technology. That's what it really means. And God says, let us go and see what they're doing with this new technology. In fact, in the Hebrew, it's so great because um, God has to squint to see the tower that they built. <laughs> they think it's magnificent. And from God's standpoint, well, it's really tiny. Um, but the bricks, when you hear the word brick, it really foreshadows other bad omens. Because if you think in the next book, Exodus, um, in Egypt, there's another time where a leader will talk about bricks, and that's Pharaoh's speech. Um, or Solomon will use bricks, using slave labor, to build a temple to the God of, who frees slaves. And he uses bricks to build up um, military bases. So the odd part is... Um, the speech in Hebrew is that uh, bricks, uh, they're, they're a technology that often gets misused. I know that sounds kind of strange where you think brick is a new technology. It's a Neolithic story, very, very ancient story. Now, oddly enough, they make the bricks, and then they ask, well, what else can we do with these? They invent technology, and then the technology has unintended consequences. So it's also a story about the birth of the kind of the first technology. And God never says that the bricks are wrong. That's not the point. But how and why you use this technology, that becomes the issue. And technology is just a form of human creativity. Um, but even technology or creativity unguided can be a cancer. Most technology, technological advances um, were actually turned and used for war eventually. So the sin is when we over-identify with the creativity of technology and forget the source of our origin. So 
God sees a need to put an end to this tower, um, and it uses similar Hebrew phrasing. Um, God exiles mankind once again, or mankind is exiled. Um, Mankind, because it didn't want unity with God and each other, are exiled from the garden. Mankind, once again, are exiled, and even more exiled by the confusion of languages. Not as punishment, but as a consequence of forgetting God. And so they build this city and tower, uh, ziggurat. And I just thought, yes, it's, they think it's huge. God can, can't even see it. And they're building the city for unity. That's a good thing. They're building the city for unity, and the tower means a purpose. The tower is for this monument to themselves. So the city is this monument to their own name. So you have to ask the question, well, what's so bad about you know, building a monument or building a city? Um, so here's the towering question. They're not rebelling against God. What they want is to make a name for themselves. Like people often put names on buildings to remember who and what they did. So the tower is going to be a monument so that the people won't be scattered. The tower will be this monument so that we're united. And really, based on the Genesis story, isn't unity a good thing? But building a mon monument to our own greatness, that can get into problems. Did anybody ever read the story The Power and the Glory by Graham Greene? Somebody said yes. Oh, just Buttercup? Um, it, uh, no, that's actually her legal name, is Buttercup. Um, uh, I don't want to talk about that, but um, it's a great story about this priest. I read it when I was in seminary. Lo and behold, I did not know it was an accurate picture of the priesthood. Um, so there, you have this priest who, it's a great story, this priest who wants the power and the glory of priesthood. So he wants to build this huge church as a monument to himself. And in it, he says, oh, I'll build this huge church. Everybody will remember my name. Um, and then somebody else can pay it off. <laughs> that actually is more true than you might know. And um, anyhow, uh, it's during the anti-Catholic. The government in Mexico becomes very anti-Catholic. He's on the run for his life. Um, and in the end, the power and the glory is not what monuments he builds to himself, but how he dies for his people. So there's nothing wrong with a building. That's not what I'm saying. But the misguided attempt to build community on the wrong motives, on the wrong motives, always end in self-destruction. So like Adam and Eve, the people's blessings are the perfect spot to grow. And this new technology independent from God, always becomes a failure. So true community cannot be found exclusively on human achievement, nor one common language, nor one great technology. No offense, it reminds me of the communism of Russia. You know, the communism was going to promise, without God, we're going to have technology and growth, and or the French Revolution. They always promise this great community and liberty and love, and then it always ends up terribly. That's the story of the Tower of Babel. The narrative suggests that a society that seeks to bring 
order, out of cultural or economic or political chaos, um, just based on our own definitions of what is great, always ends in this kind of rebellion against life. You think you're building community based on these political ideas, and it always ends in self-defeat, uh, not greater unity. So really, like at the end of the Bible, this idea of this great city is going to happen. But in the book of Revelation, the great city comes down from heaven. A real source of unity and doesn't come from what we can do. It's what God can do in us. So you have the story of the Tower of Babel. And remember, and this sounds kind of strange, they want to build, quote-unquote, a name for themselves. In Hebrew, do you know how what you call God? One of the names of... Okay, so I love this, so you have to learn a little Hebrew. How, if you ever hear um, a Jew speak, they'll talk about Hashem, right? Has anybody heard that before, Hashem? So Hashem just means the name. God is the name that can't be named. You can't really define God, but I, so I love that. Um, God is Hashem. God is the name. And so, like later, the apostles, they will preach in the name, the name of Jesus. Now, to us, we're so used to that, you don't understand what it's saying. When it says the name of Jesus, that's a very backward Jewish way of saying, oh, Jesus is Hashem. Does that make sense? Um, Jesus, Hashem is God. Uh, Hashem's, uh, Jesus is Hashem. Uh, so anyhow, but they don't want to be connected to Hashem, the name. They want the, their name to be great. So, uh, so, yeah. so it does end in greater confusion, not greater unity. So God says, let us confuse their name. This sounds kind of strange. It's not a punishment, it's a good thing. It sounds strange, but the handicap, sometimes the handicap is the best challenge to make us better so that we truly rely on what unites us rather than the superficial. So it's a story how God handicaps us with different languages so that we won't look for externals to be the source of our unity. The opposite of the Tower of Babel is actually Pentecost. When the Holy Spirit comes upon us, it's a Pentecost that's going to unite us. And so Babel is the Hebrew word for confusion. So in this story, God is an agent, in the Genesis story, God is this agent of order and unity. Now in the Babel story, God is this agent of human disorder. God sometimes wants to throw us into disorder so the unity we have won't be based on externals. People spoke one language, and in, their end, in the end, their attempt to build a name for themselves leads them more divided, with less shalom. Remember, shalom really means unity. Um, and I, I'm just going to throw this out, but, um, but I find this so common, not just with, you know, you listen to the news, and everybody always thinks some technology is going to unite humanity. It's not that technology is wrong, but without a desire for an internal unity between us, any external advance never really works. Or uh, a lot of times, even in churches, 
people base their unity on externals. So, I don't want to say, but there's a parish in Boise, St. John's. Um, <laughs> I didn't say that. Who, um, St. John's in Boise is in the wealthy section of the city. That's the highest real estate. And let me pause. I really, really believe in social justice. You know, I, I will work the slums. I have done that. So I met St. John's, and um, I forgot my Spanish, but I used to know Spanish. And they asked me to celebrate a Spanish mass, no problem. So I asked, I said, well, why does St. John's, the most expensive real estate in Boise, have a Spanish mass? And the woman says, well, it's social justice. I said, so, but then you don't have any Hispanics that live in your place. Um, so it's really just kind of this homage of um, see how social justice we are. We have a Spanish mass. You don't have any Hispanics that live in your territory. It's this faux image of social justice. So even during mass, I, when I was washing my hands, um, I can't remember what I said, but I said something to the altar servers in Spanish, and they just looked at me. And I said, you don't speak Spanish either? <laughs> um, but that's social justice. Um, doesn't feed or make any difference, but it certainly is great image. And it makes a name that, oh, we really care about social justice. But it's not a true name. It's not true social justice. And remember, they want to make a name for themselves. So there is in this tower an Eden passage that the action of naming, um, we try and name ourselves rather than discover who God is within us. To make a name means you name it so that you own it. If we make a name for ourselves, it means I own everything, rather than discovering the name that's written into us. That's what we're really supposed to discover, so it's a sense of unity. So it's just an opening story about, oh, God wants to unite the world, so the Babel story is, but God does not want us to be united by external things, language, technology, economics. Um, and so you have the Babel story, and contrasting that comes into the next story, the story of Abraham. And Abraham, in a way, is a reverse of the Tower of Babel story. The Abraham story and the Babel story are contrast to each other. Um, and Abraham, will, with Abraham, it will start the reverse of the stories of Babel and uh, Noah. Um, so... These are not just stories of history, of a family, but really following this theme that with Abraham, now the disorder is going to start to um, become ordered. So um, in that idea of building, Abraham does a lot of building. If you actually read his story, he does a lot of building. Abraham, uh, you have the building of the tower, but Abraham, everywhere he goes, he builds something. He always builds one thing wherever he goes in all his travels. What is the one thing he's constantly building? Altars. Good job. How did you guys get that? I was surprised. Um, so um, when he leaves his homeland and goes to the promised land, everywhere he travels, he builds altar. So Abraham's not trying to make his name great. He's trying to make God's name great. And God will make Abraham's 
it says in the passage. God will make Abraham's name great and into a great nation. Not by self-absorbed trying to build my own ego. Let your ego go and God will make your name great. So Abraham listens and follows God. And when he gets to Canaan, Abraham's gift is even better. God says to Abraham, I'm going to give this land to you and your children. If you were Abraham and heard the good news that this land would be yours and your children, what would you do? Personally, I'd be elated. I'd probably throw a party. Um, and then you'd probably set up shop, right? Because you are not, this is going to be your land forever. You'd build something like a house or a city to mark my territory out. After, after all, God promised this land, it's yours. But Abraham's reaction is the opposite. On hearing the news that all this will be his and his children, he doesn't build anything permanent. The only permanent thing he builds is an altar. So you can say, well, okay, so maybe the first thing he does is say thank you and then later builds a house for himself. But instead of settling down in one place, he actually moves on to another mountain, um, Bethel. And under a tree on another mountain, he builds another altar. So then you kind of think, okay, then after that, the next place, he'll settle down roots and build a house. But still, no, he pitches a tent. And a tent is a temporary thing for a traveler, not a settler. Um, and he goes to location to location, and each location he builds an altar and calls out the name of God, Hashem. Um, notice that Abraham isn't averse to building permanent things. He's just not building those things for himself. It's almost like he's going out of his way to mark a territory for God, not for himself and his children. Um, travel south. And what does he do? Um, he gets a little antsy, doesn't build a home, he builds altars, top of a mountain, next to a tree. Um, and if you look at all these uh, movements, it's the opposite of the Tower of Babel. In Genesis, God created a world for humanity in order to have a close relationship with us. What follows is a string of sins of um, humanity becoming distanced from God. Uh, culminating in the Tower of Babel. And we discovered that the Tower wasn't about fighting God or anything like that. It was the, about the danger of forgetting God, of focusing on just making a name for yourself, um, marveling at our own technology, um, confronted with impermanence. What humanity often does is build monuments to himself instead of strengthening our relationship with the one eternal being that is permanent. Um, compared to that story, um, Abraham's journey is much different. Uh, he's not building monuments to himself, but simply to God. So, um, oh, sorry. Um, so God, after that, he uh, goes east to Bet-El, which just in Hebrew means house of God. Now, that's the site where Abra uh, Jacob later will have his dream of the angels running up and down. Uh, but that's also exactly where the temple is going to be built. Um, uh, but now looking back at the tower story, they traveled east and found a valley that was absolutely perfect for them to settle. Um, and they settled there 
but they only create disunity. So Abraham, back in the uh, story, the next thing he does is build an altar. Same word. Um, so the builders want to build a monument to themselves. An altar is something that you worship on. So um, at each time he builds an altar, it says he calls out on the name of God. Abraham doesn't care about his own legacy. He's only promoting God. So just pause there. Do you get how Abraham is um, the contrast of the Tower of Babel story? Or do you want me to continue explaining this? Okay, only that table got it. Um, uh, okay, so, uh, so I love that. So with Abraham is the beginning of monotheism. Abraham is the father of religion. And it starts with a call. So I'm just going to read it because I like it. Now his name at this point is not Abraham, but Abram. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And all people on the earth will be blessed for you. Now, when Abraham gets the call, there's a few Hebrew phrases I know that I just love. And the... Um, what God says to Abraham, and you have to learn this Hebrew because it's going to come up again and again, even in the Gospels. Um, what God says is, lech lachai. And when you say that, you have to kind of spit at the person across the table. No, it's good for him. Um, so everybody say, lech lachai. So really, it, it'll get translated, go forth, but it really means go deep. Isn't that really beautiful? And so when Jesus calls the uh, apostles, they're fishermen, and they say, oh, we've been working, we can't find anything. Um, what he says, except it's a Greek translation, what Jesus says, it'll be translated in English, like, set out your nets into the deep or something. But what Jesus says is, in the Hebrew, it would be lech lehi. Like, we want to go deep. And lech lehi is this quest. It's a quest to go deep. Now, it's not really deep into a territory. It's deep into our humanity. Uh, so as, if you claim to be a son of Abraham, you're one who goes deep and into the unfamiliar territory. Uh, Abraham's home was either Mesopotamia or Turkey. But now he's asked, technically, to leave everything he knows behind. Um, and he's called to make this journey to find a new home. Uh, after this, he will always be traveling. Now, this symbolizes uh, the Christian journey to heaven. Um, we're always supposed to be moving. Really never, never settle on how we are. Even in Hebrew, I know I mentioned this, the name for a Hebrew feast is the root word for leg. And <laughs> you think, that? well, that's crazy. No, because in the Hebrew mindset, to be a son of Abraham, you're always journeying. Who you are today is not who you're supposed to be tomorrow. And you use religion to constantly change. So if you're wondering, well, why do we have to have a procession at the end of Mass, it's, or beginning of Mass? It's not to greet me. It's picking up this Hebrew idea that, like Abraham, we're people who are always going deep, always journeying, never settled on just how we are. The problem with people who want religion 
Some people, I swear to God, look at this. They want religion so that they never have to change anything. If there's no change, they have all the answers, their lifestyle is not going to change, they will not move from one type of living to another. Does that make sense? Um, so each mass starts out with this journey, but if you think about it, wow, Abraham is this image of journey. To be a son of a, or daughter of Abraham, it means you hear this call of lech lehi, always going deeper and deeper. So Abraham's covenant is, and this is kind of key, Abraham's covenant, if you read the Hebrew, it's not just with the Jewish people. It's a covenant God makes with Abraham for all people. Anybody who's truly religious, who's journeying closer and closer to God, is a son of Abraham. And what God wants most out of the Bible is a family. So he chooses Abraham's family to make this journey. So um, you'll hear it get translated sometimes in Catholic documents as the people of God, quote-unquote. The actual translation should be the family of God. So the call is really not one person. It's an entire clan. Not just an entire clan. It's your children's children's children that receives a call through you. Um, and it is a call to become disassociated from what you know of your culture and your familiar way of life, and the response is not verbal, it's functional. Does that make sense? Like, he doesn't say, okay, great. No, he changes his life. How you respond to God is by a change of life, and this is going to be kind of important, but Abraham's an old man, and when God calls him, he does respond, but what Abraham says three times is, here I am. Here I am is going to be an incredibly important Hebrew phrase. Here I am, and I'll probably get into it with the um, Isaac story or Jacob story. Isaac story. But anytime somebody says, here I am, it means they're willing to sacrifice their life, and they've died to their ego. So now they can follow God. And if you notice, most time it's, uh, well, except for one exception, a child says it. Uh, Samuel says it, but as a child. Everybody else is old when they say it. Here I am means um, I'm willing to change everything. Um, so it's a religious vow to say, here I am. And Abraham is the father of the Hebrew. And the Hebrew, uh, that phrase Hebrew, means one who has crossed over. And when it says crossed over, it means he was living in this familiar culture and he crosses the river, so he crosses over into this unknown way of life. Crossover and Passover are going to be almost the same words. So he gets this call. And then I'm going to jump because, you know, time issues. Um, and Abraham then is blessed. So in chapter 14, Abraham is blessed by Melchizedek. Um, so, how does religion start with this call? Secondly, how does God bless religion? At the very, very beginning, how does God bless religion? Always through food. And it's through bread and wine. Whether it's later in Exodus or several places in the Bible. Um, God blesses Abraham, but he does it through Melchizedek with bread and wine. So, the very first time the word priest appears, it appears with the high priest Melchizedek. So 
just want to cover this. Who and what is Melchizedek? Because think about this. Now, wait a minute. You have this high priest of Yahweh. Do you understand how bizarre that is? Because if Abraham is the beginning of religion, where the heck did this priest come from? Do you, you know, do you get the, like, if you're reading it, you think, wait a minute, if you're the very beginning of religion, I'm going to point to Dan, if you're the beginning of religion, well, then who the heck is this priest who's blessing you with bread and wine? Um, he's the high priest of Yahweh? Does anybody see a problem with that word? What's the problem? Well, that's true. Yahweh is God. But remember, the first person to speak the name Yahweh is Eve in the Genesis story. And then out of um, the Garden of Eden, mankind had forgotten what is God's name. So that's not going to be revealed for several hundred years with Moses. So if Moses is the one who God reveals his name as Yahweh, then who the heck is this high priest of Yahweh who's blessing Abraham? Do you get the, the mix-up with the timeline? Um, and he's the king of the city of peace, Jerusalem. Well, Jerusalem doesn't even exist any yet. So, okay, one more issue. Try and figure out who he is. He says he has no mother or father or end of days. Now, what can so he's a high priest of Yahweh, king of the city of priests, no uh, mother or father. Does that ring a bell to anybody? What's that? Try Christ. So, like, do you get, like, it's in the Old Testament. Like, Jews doesn't really explain. Hebrews have thoughts, but it, the answer won't come who Melchizedek. Melchizedek is this foreshadowing of Christ. And this sounds kind of strange, just confuses people. But St. Paul is going to say, Christ always existed. It's Christ who led the Hebrew out of Egypt. It was Christ who spoke to Abraham. Uh, so, like, so this little bit of theology won't make sense until you get to Christ. But um, remember, there's two priesthoods in the Old Testament. There's the uh, Melchizedek priesthood, that's the most ancient, and then later with Moses, he'll start a priesthood, Aaron. But the prophets say when the Christ comes, that second priesthood will end. Um, so you have this uh, priest Melchizedek of uh, Ancient of Days, and, um, oh, okay, so um, enough of that. So he blesses them with bread and wine. I just like that because, like, uh, Christ is the high priest of Melchizedek, and every Sunday, like Abraham, he blesses us with bread and wine. It's a foreshadowing of what's going to happen in the New Testament. Does that make sense? So the same way that's how God started off blessing religion continues today. Then you have this same strange thing about the covenant with circumcision, circumcision in chapter 17. Um, where he gets a promise of a son and a vision. And so it says this. It, the ceremony is uh, actually found in chapter 15, and it happens at nat night where he's lost. Abraham has lost hope. You know, he's an old man, and you're telling me I'm going to have a child? So um, Abraham, God takes him outside and says, look at the stars. Uh, the same way you can't count the stars, you'll have that many children someday or descendants, and gives him 
this dream. I just want to explain this. Um, I'm just going to mention this. I know I mentioned it before, but all the major sacred events in the Bible always happen at night. You kind of think that happen in the daytime, but there's this whole, it's called lunar theology, that, wow, it's in the darkness where God makes the promise. It's in the darkness that the bread of life fell. Uh, it's always in the darkness that people are saved. It's not in the light where you know everything. So Abraham can't see the future. How am I, an old man, going to become a father of many? So in the dark, um, makes this promise, has this dream, and he has this, sees this flaming brazier, which I love the phrase framing blazer, brazier, because um, when it's read at mass, it's always mispronounced. Um, so they changed the word to smoking pot. Um, <laughs> but you, do you guys know why I like the name brazier? Oh, okay. Kathy, do you know? Oh. Really? You guys never noticed? Wow, you guys have great readers, unlike in the southern Idaho. Because every time the word brazier comes up, that God appeared in a smoking brazier, the reader always says, God appeared in a smoking brazier. <laughs> swear to God. You guys never heard that? Because oh, yeah. it's spelled very similar. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, uh, a brazier is a fire pot with fire and smoke. Um, God can't really be named or seen, so this smoke and fire, God always appears in smoke and fire. Um, and Abraham does say like this line, a slave born in my house shall become my heir. Um, like he thinks it's going to be um, uh, his other son, uh, so it'll be his own son. And God says, no, it'll be your seed. So um, uh, that, it's a trick word when it says seed in Hebrew because the word for seed and um, like descendant can mean seed or teaching. So if you call yourself a son of Abraham, that will promise that you are the seed of Abraham, it means you practice his teaching. I'll get into that in a second. But um, uh, anyhow, God makes this covenant with them, but at this point, the sign of the covenant is circumcision. So it's this permanent um, sign that God has made this everlasting covenant with Abraham and his descendants. Um, and you kind of, like, I know this is going to get a little body, but... Um, you can say, well, why a circumcision? Um, well, remember, at this point, Abraham can't see how he's going to become a father of many. And so the circumcision is supposed to be the sign for every man. Remember, the source of life is not you. The source of life is God. And anyone, um, so you have to be circumcised. Uh, what, now, later, um, Christ Christianity is going to be circumcise your heart. But the source of your life is baptism. So baptism will take over the covenant of circumcision. And St. Paul makes a great deal about this. Um, but uh, anyhow, so at this point, Abraham gets his name changed. Most of the holy people, except for one, have their name changed in the Bible. 
So he goes from Abram to Abraham. Uh, so Abraham doesn't make a name for himself, unlike the Tower of Babel. It's God who gives Abraham his name. Abram means my father, exalt. Uh, Abraham is father of many. Uh, his wife's name is changed from Sarai to Sarah. Um, uh, so that's why just in Catholicism, like if you go through confirmation, you got to choose your own name. Um, so I just want to mention, what's the difference between, because God makes a covenant with Abraham. So what's the difference between a covenant and a contract, or a covenant and a promise? A promise is when I give my word. A covenant is when I give my life. So a covenant always in the Bible has a sacrifice, an offering of life, a shedding of blood. In this case, it's circumcision. But we make this big issue about that in Catholicism. We have the liturgy of the word, and I know I've explained this, but the liturgy of the word, you know, it comes from the Jewish synagogue worship. You know, at the end of, like, book of Isaiah, and then it says the word of God, and you guys say, at least that side said it. Um, <laughs> you're actually making this promise to God that you'll live out those readings. But the covenant doesn't come until the Eucharist, when you receive communion. So we have both a promise and a covenant. The liturgy of the word makes a promise to God. The Eucharist makes a covenant with God. So the covenant with Abraham is going to be life and land, descendants. And notice it's always seven. So I just want to repeat this. How you say a covenant in Hebrew is to cut seven. So it's always seven animals. And the smoking brazier, it, it goes in between the cut up seven animals and it's a way of making this, it's ancient, Abraham wouldn't known the symbol. If I make a covenant with you, both of us would walk through the cut up animals in this covenant that if I break this, may I be torn apart just like these animals. So God is promising self-destruction with this covenant. But does Abraham ever walk through the animals? Do you get my point or did I lose you? Does Abraham ever walk through the animals saying, destroy me if I don't keep this covenant? Abraham never walks through. Only God does. It's a one-sided covenant. Um, does that make sense? Like, yeah, that's a pretty good deal. I don't get destroyed. God will destroy himself if this covenant is broken. That's a win-win. Does that make sense? Um, uh, and, like, um, but you do have to make a sign of the covenant, which is circumcision. So it means blood. And if you think, well, why not just cut off a lock of hair? Because with the circumcision, Abraham, when he's depressed, thinking, I'll never have children, and then he uh, sleeps with his wife's maiden to have Ishmael but he's trying to take control of this covenant of life with his own sexual powers, with Hagar. Um, the circumcision is the one who's in control of life is God. And by the way, with this covenant, it's the first time in history, uh, and this is the only religion in ancient world that connected God making a covenant to a moral code. So there's this moral code. So Abraham makes a covenant with God. Um, 
Uh, so, you have the circumcision, and then my favorite part is um, actually Genesis 18, where um, uh, Genesis 18 is the story of Abraham and the three angels. So, love this story, so I have to tell a different story. Um, there is a parishioner at Holy Apostles who um, his, his mother and father live in Montana and live on the border. And I just think this is so funny. So he comes back uh, to um, Holy Apostles, and I said, oh, how was the visit with your parents? And he says, oh, it was not good. We had, had to have some hard discussions. And I said, well, what, what was the matter? And he says, oh, I think this is so funny. He, he uh, comes downstairs for breakfast, and his mother's making breakfast. And uh, he says, good morning. And she says, quiet, you'll wake up the Canadians. Um, and he says, what? Oh. He says, no, they're sleeping in the front room. So he goes and looks in the front room, and there's all these like 20-year-old young men sleeping in the front room. So he asks the obvious question, mother, why are there Canadians in the front room? <laughs> this elderly couple, um, a while back, uh, the Canadians, they live close to the uh, United States border. So they would come down to their town to drink and whoop it up. And one of them died driving back to Canada. So they were so distraught about this. They went to all the bars and restaurants and uh, gave maps to their house and said, you know, if you're ever drinking, don't drive back. Just we'll leave the front door open and you just come and you'll get a breakfast in the morning. Just isn't that amazing? And he was not happy. He said, Mother, you can't advertise that your front door is open. <laughs> I don't really care. Like, he, he was upset. I was like, oh, my God, they're saints. Um, and the point being is that, oh, that's like Abraham and Sarah. Um, so with Abraham and Sarah, they're this elderly couple. And in the, it says the heat of the day. And this is the desert, so somebody could die. Um, you know, that's the one time you don't travel. You could die of thirst. And Abraham is sitting by the door of his tent. And he sees what it says is three strangers. Well, they're not of his clan, his people, his tribe. Uh, they're Canadians. So um, he runs out, and the language is great. He calls them lords. He says, my lords, and bows down to them. Like, excessive. Like, he's the head of the clan, the, the chieftain. And he's bowing to these three strangers. That's weird. And he says, come inside, and I'll give you a little water. I'll wash your feet. Well, washing feet, in case you didn't know, Jesus is going to do the same thing. But only a slave watches, washes somebody else's feet. So he brings them inside. He says, oh, I'll get you a little water. I'll, I'll make you a little food. Uh, so... Uh, Sarah, she's crazy too, she bakes three measures of flour. How much is three measures of flour? 50 pounds of bread for three strangers. Abraham cooks a whole cow. Like he's excessive in his hospitality. And the word is hospitality. Um, and the, the strangers actually turn out to be angels in disguise. And they said, oh, because since you offered us hospitality. God will offer you greater life. 
And the idea is this, is that um, it's called the law of hospitality. If you offer people outside your circle um, the stranger hospitality, then God will grant you greater life. If you refuse to show others hospitality, God will take the little life that you have. Um, and so oh, they said, oh, since you, and I love this. The story uh, uh, of the father of faith is God is searching for humanity to invite us, to invite God into a meal. You do that, and then God will provide a meal for you for eternity. Um, and so, um, so since you offered us life, you'll be granted life. And your wife, as old as she is, she will have a child. And she laughs, because that's crazy. And ah, in a year, she does give birth to Isaac. Isaac in Hebrew means laughter. And he serves them, and this I know that's kind of strange. He serves them butter, milk, and meat um, together. And I just mentioned that because if you're Jewish, you would realize, oh, you're not supposed to do that. Jews are never supposed to meet dairy products with meat. Does that make sense? Because the Canaanites did. Uh, it's cruel cuisine. So I'll explain that later when you do the book of Exodus. But the point being is that this is not a kosher meal. Abraham is not kosher. But that's it. Kosher is not going to happen until Moses. There's something that pre-exists and more important than just kosher laws. So Abraham, and I'm not going to go over this, just take my word. Abraham, the father of faith, keeps breaking Levitical laws. So um, it's not that he's violating them. There's just a a more ancient, more important religious law than all the religious laws that will come up later. And that's the law of hospitality. It pre-exists and precedes any religious laws. Does that make sense? Um, okay, so I know I'm running out of time. Can we just go 10 minutes? Because we did start 10 minutes late. Do you guys mind? Okay, I'm going to try and speed through this. But um, by the way, that... Abraham and the meal, that's a foreshadowing of Eucharist, where in the Gospel of Luke, you eat with, at Christ's table, you must show, welcome the stranger. So the angels go from Abraham offering hospitality to Sodom and Gomorrah. And um, Sodom and Gomorrah, just archaeologically, um, that would have been a lush, lush region. Remember, Abraham goes, grow so big that <clears throat> at one point they have to divide. So he says to his nephew, um, his nephew, um, well, I tell you what, you choose. You choose one side and I'll take the other side. We've grown too big. And not, that's odd because Abraham's the chief he, and he's the lesser. And Abraham basically says, no, God has already blessed me. W whatever you choose, um, I know God will be generous with me. He doesn't have to try and grasp everything. And so Lot looks, and one side is desert, and the other side is lush and green. So Lot says, oh, I'll take the green side. <laughs> um, well, that's where Sodom and Gomorrah is. And archaeologically, um, this sounds kind of strange. This is going to be kind of key. In very, very ancient sites, it's actually still practiced in um, Afghanistan. 
they would rape strangers as a warning to other foreigners. You come into our territory and um, bad things will happen. This is not about sex. This is a, a political policy of rape just to make sure foreigners know uh, there is no hospitality here. So one like um, British soldier in Afghanistan said, there is no mercy in Afghanistan. If they capture you, this is what will happen to you. They will denigrate you as much as possible. So what is the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah? What does the Bible say that the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah is? In the Book of Wisdom, it says inhospitality. In Isaiah, it says uh, injustice to the poor and to the stranger. In Ezekiel, it says it offers inhospitality to the poor. Uh, Jesus, when he mentions Sodom and Gomorrah, he mentions it as a sin against hospitality. So I know this sounds kind of strange. I want you to think of that sense. You have Abraham offering hospitality, and the law of hospitality is you welcome the stranger, you'll be granted more life. The opposite of that story is the Sodom and Gomorrah story. Sodom and Gomorrah, the angels go to Sodom and Gomorrah, and the same way Abraham was at the door of the tent, Lot is at the door of the city, and he sees these strangers, and he says, quickly get into my house. This is not a safe place for you. Um, so, uh, um, anyhow, the, the point being is that it's inhospitality. Lot, like his uncle, offers protection to the angels. Does that make sense? But the city of Sodom and Gomorrah offers inhospitality, so what they're granted is uh, less life. They lose their life. Uh, does that make any sense? Did I confuse people? Be honest. Dan, you seem confused. Is it really? Is it confusing? You're not there? Oh, okay. So, um, Lot and his wife and family escape, but there's a strange story of Lot's wife turning and looking backwards. The point being is that you, you have to be more moving forward with God, not always complaining about what you uh, lack in life. Okay, so that kind of... I. Don't, did it as a quick wrap-up, but any questions about the Abraham story? Too confusing? All right, well, next week we'll go Abraham, Isaac, so it's going to be the Isaac story next week. So. Hello, this is Father Len McMillan. I'd like to take a moment to thank you for listening to our podcast. If they've been a blessing to you, I'd also like to invite you to prayerfully discern supporting the podcast financially. Your generosity would help support the ongoing production and distribution of the podcast. If you'd like to make a donation, you can simply click the link in the podcast description. Be sure to tell us your donation is for the podcast in the comment section of the submission form. Again, thank you for your support as we seek to share the good news of the gospel. May God bless you for your generosity.